we know that applying resources and attention to people simply because of their ethnicity doesn't work. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, FP's executive editor for news, and you're listening to the ER. Joining me in our Washington studio is FP editorial fellow Martin de Bormont. And over the phone, we have former acting undersecretary for intelligence and analysis at the Department of Homeland Security, John Cohen, and FP contributor George Joseph. FP recently published an article by George Joseph that included a Department of Homeland Security draft report from late January, which called on authorities to continuously vet Sunni Muslim immigrants to the United States who were deemed to have at-risk demographic profiles. The draft report looks at 25 terrorist attacks in the United States since 9-11 and states that there would be, quote, great value for the United States government in dedicating resources to continuously evaluate persons of interest, unquote, and suggests that immigrants to the United States be tracked on a long-term basis. Um, George, as the reporter who obtained this document, I was wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the basics of it. Who produced it and what was it meant for? The document was an early draft document produced by the Customs and Border Intelligence, and it was produced at the request of Commissioner McClellan to conduct such a study. Um, the, basis, the basic gist of the document is that in the department's efforts to improve its vetting procedures, which refer to the monitoring and analysis of risks posed by travelers to the United States and longer-term visitors or residents, they conducted an analysis which sought to mean common demographic characteristics involved in terrorist attacks. What was surprising about the report, however, was that the incidents uh, examined for the report were solely confined to incidents involving Sunni Muslim perpetrators, um, and 25 of them. We're not really sure how the methodology for the selection of the 25 incidents was um, done. But uh, unsurprisingly, they concluded that young Sunni Muslim men from a wide variety of backgrounds and with a wide variety of immigration statuses were involved in these incidents. So sort of seen by outside observers as a case of a dog chasing its own tail, methodologically speaking. Got it. And of course, this comes right on the heels of another rather controversial study that was joint by the Department of Homeland Security and Justice Department that was released on January 16th, which claimed that three out of every four individuals convicted of international terrorism or terrorism-related offenses were immigrants. And of course, that study as well came under a lot of criticism. Do you think or do you know that this report, the one that was leaked and that you wrote about, is it linked to that January 16th report or was it part of sort of a broader push that was going on within government? We don't know about a specific link, but from what sources within the department and former sources have said is that it clearly seems to be part of a broader politicized trend of um, stoking fears of immigrants and Muslim immigrants in particular. Um, And it also comes on heels of broader attempts um, by DHS agencies such as ICE to um, expand and intensify what's called recurrent vetting sort of continuous checks on people after they've already come to the country and passed our vetting standards upon entry. 
Got it. I want to turn to John Cohen for a second. John, you know, in terms of your role overseeing intelligence and analysis, I mean, there are reports that come out of that office. There is this report from CBP. There's the joint DHS-DOJ report. What I mean, what role do different agencies have in producing either the analysis or the data? Or how how is it normally worked together in government for reports like these? And, and is this report that we wrote about, is it out of the ordinary in your view? Well, I think the answer to your latter question is it depends what, the use, what they're using the data in the report for. So as you are probably aware, CBP over the last six years has made tremendous strides in their ability to vet those traveling to this country, whether they're coming on a visa uh, or through a visa waiver country or as a refugee. But anyone traveling to this country, uh, they provide biographic and biometric data uh, and that data is compared to a broad array of intelligence uh, and other law enforcement-related information, both classified and unclassified. And so as a result of these efforts, uh, we are much better at, at detecting those individuals seeking to come here who may be involved in criminal activity or may be potentially associated uh, with terrorist activity. So as a part of their ongoing efforts, CBP is constantly evaluating and reevaluating intelligence so that they can adjust the vetting protocols they use for people coming into this country. My concern is that because uh, we've seen a number of instances where this administration, in an effort to validate their uh, ramped up enforcement efforts against immigrants uh, and their anti-immigrant political agenda, they've in t they've on several occasions mischaracterized data uh, or cherry-picked data in an effort to make the case that people seeking to come to this country or people who are here in an unauthorized or undocumented status uh, represent a greater risk for violence or terrorism. And the analysis, the objective analysis that's been conducted by law enforcement over the last three to four years simply does not support that um, as an accurate description of the current threat environment facing the country. One of the questions I had and that we didn't get into in this article, but was sort of a question for myself, is why focus on Sunni Muslims? I mean, that was, I mean, I think there were a number of things that struck George, myself, and others that we thought was strange. And that was one of them. Is Sunni Muslims just a way of characterizing post-ISIS and Al-Qaeda-inspired people? Why divide between Shia and Sunni Muslim terrorist attacks? It just seems like an odd division. Well, as you look at the the threat posed to the United States from foreign terrorist groups, particularly those that are uh, groups with extremist Islamic ideological um, platforms. Uh, there, there are some who are primarily Sunni-based, like al-Qaeda and ISIS, and then you have other groups that are primarily Shia-based, like Hezbollah. So it's a little unclear to me, quite frankly, why, if you're setting up parameters for a, a piece of analysis, uh, you would simply want to focus on attacks committed by individuals who may either self-connected with or be working in league with uh, Sunni terrorist organizations. It seems that you're, you're, you're front-end loading your, uh, a major flaw into your analytic approach, regardless of whether the goal of your analysis is to refine your vetting protocols or to have an accurate understanding of the threat facing the country. 
Right. George, now you actually spoke and you quoted in the article on background, not by name, a current DHS official. And it does seem like there were concerns from those currently within the department about the way this report was being compiled um, and being used. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. The person I spoke with within DHS who had reviewed the report um, seemed to share similar concerns. Why why are only uh, Sunni Muslims being examined for this report? If we want to um, sort of have a fair assessment of risk, why not look at all terrorist incidents and then perhaps from from that kind of analysis glean how we need to move forward in terms of risk assessments? Um, They also felt that in cherry-picking the data to just look at Sunni incidents, they're potentially actually endangering Homeland Security by not taking all risks uh, seriously. Right. And the other thing that was so striking for me about this report, as opposed to perhaps some of the other things that have come out, was that it would apply to people, green card holders, others, you know, permanent residency in the United States. Now, Martin, you actually conducted an interview with someone who looked at sort of the predecessor to that, a Bush administration, Bush era um, program. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, and we have uh, an immigration lawyer who was also quoted in the piece who mentioned this, Sharifa Abbasi. It's this national security entry exit uh, registration system known as NSEERS. And basically, this was a program through which uh, registered non-citizen visa holders, almost exclusively from Muslim-majority countries, they had to register with the government. This was pretty roundly criticized. Um, and this was when, around 2004 or 5, so or a little this, bit later? It was after was, 9-11, of this course. This was after 9-11, yes. And basically, this was up through the Obama years. And eventually, um, you know, because of the criticism that it faced, it was uh, sort of, you know, decommissioned. And that's a question actually I'd like to ask as well is um, uh, to our, our guest here is is whether or not uh, when people bring up this program, is this something um, when, when we see this report, is this something that is, is reminiscent of the NSEERS program? And does it suggest that the Trump administration is attempting to reinstitute something of this nature? John, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I was at the department when they moved away from the NSEERS program. And they moved away from that and similar and related vetting uh, programs that were in place um, because they were found not only to be inefficient because they prioritized uh, the you know enforcement action or uh, or activities on people solely because of their uh, country of origin or ethnicity versus whether they were behaving in a manner consistent with uh, individuals that we know are involved in criminal or illegal or um, or terrorism-related activities. So that's why over the years, CBP has moved away, uh, Customs and Border Protection has moved away from ethnic-based vetting protocols to behavioral-based vetting protocols, which leads me to my second point. If you, if you actually look at the totality of information that's available regarding the threat facing the United States today, the primary terrorism-related threat comes from individuals who are in this country who have either been here since birth or who have been here for long periods of time, who become inspired uh, and self-connect to a extremist cause, primarily because they are uh, looking at materials via social media or the Internet. And these are usually individuals who are vulnerable to being influenced by these materials because they have underlying mental health issues. So a great deal of work has been conducted Um, by law enforcement, by the FBI, to really understand the behavioral characteristics of 
of, of these attackers. And in today's threat environment, that's where we need to be focusing our attention and our resources. And instead, my third point here is that from some public statements that have been made by department officials over the last several weeks, it seems like they're heading down the road where they want to use the same vetting capabilities that we use to uh, examine individuals coming into this country to individuals who have been living in this country or may even be citizens. Uh, and I think there are some real, uh, regardless of whether there's information that they're involved with illegal activity or not, and simply targeting these people because of their family's country of origin or their ethnicity. I think there's some real constitutional questions about whether that would be allowable, but from a law, pure law enforcement perspective, as someone who's been in law enforcement and homeland security for over 32 years, we know that applying resources and attention to people simply because of their ethnicity doesn't work. It's a misuse of resources. You're focusing on people who aren't involved in illegal activity, and therefore you don't have the resources to focus on people who actually are involved in illegal activity. Yeah, one of the things that was also very interesting for us is we did ask Customs and Border Patrol if this study could theoretically apply to green card holders and to naturalized U.S. citizens, and they they did not reply to those questions. What was also interesting, though, is they seem to be actually quite embarrassed by this um, draft document. They came back with a very extended statement calling it, quote, an initial first draft, and they said it is extremely important to highlight an important aspect, the document that was improperly provided to us as not a final CBP intelligence assessment. And then they went on to say that some of the citations that we had had since changed in the draft. And we do take that at face value, but it was striking that, you know, they they seem to sense this this was not a good approach or the claims that they had changed it. Is it is it normal, John, would this would these sorts of documents go through drastic revisions? They would, but, I mean, this whole conversation, I, I feel very torn as we're having this conversation, because on the one hand, I think CBP, and in particular the part of CBP that is responsible for vetting individuals and cargo coming to this country, is one of the true success stories um, of the post-9-11 period. I mean, we, are so, we have become so much more proficient and so much more information-driven, intelligence-driven, and we operate at, with, with, with a higher level of constitutional protections in place as we are doing it, the country is much safer because what CBP has accomplished from a vetting perspective. And we've actually looked at using those same capabilities uh, as we've evaluated visa overstays, for example, who may be in this country, so that ICE can use their limited enforcement resources going after visa overstays who may, be a nas- who may represent a national security uh, or, or public safety threat. That said, those capabilities, as robust as they are, were, were never intended to be used to continuously revet people who are you know, naturalized citizens or people who are citizens by birth simply because they happen to have, uh, they're part of a certain ethnic group. And I think the CBP folks that I know, at least, while I haven't spoken to them directly about this, I have to imagine they're very concerned because on the one hand, they're very proud, rightly, of what they've accomplished. They want to be able to have the tools to continue to improve those vetting capabilities, particularly by the introduction of greater automation to what is now a very manually intensive or manual resource intensive effort. But at the same time, they have a very clear, would be very clearly uncomfortable with using those same resources uh, in the ways that I think some at the DHS leadership level imagine. 
I have a bit of a wonky question. I mean, it seems like there is this sort of proliferation of studies from different departments. What would be the role of a study that comes out of DHS intelligence and analysis versus CBP versus DOJ? Like, what would normally be the different functions of what these agencies would study for reports like these? Well, that's actually a really good question. Um, so from an, from an intelligence and analysis perspective, an intelligence analysis would work with ICE, other DHS components, perhaps even um, state, state and local law enforcement, as well as the intelligence community. Their primary, primary focus would be to take a step back and look at the threat, for example. What is the threat facing the United States? And that's why you've seen a number of recent uh, intelligence and analysis reports that have talked about the threat of, as they've called it, lone wolf or homegrown violent extremists even at the same time where, from a political discourse perspective, there's a real emphasis from the White House focusing on, um, you know, Islamic threats that are related to Islam. Uh, So you would, you would, there's also the INA type reports, there's a very rigorous process that they have to go through to ensure that those reports conform to um, the intelligence community standards, which are pretty strict. And there's a, a real resistance to what they call the politicalization of intelligence, which is you have a political agenda, so give me a report that supports my agenda. Most professional career intelligence analysts who work within the intelligence community will resist um, having their, either their products manipulated uh, or being directed to create flawed products simply to support a political agenda. That said, I think it's interesting to note that the DOJ report you're talking about, not the Customs and Border Protection report, but the previous report, I can't find anyone in my conversations at the FBI or DHS INA who were involved in putting those reports together. So it's unclear to me exactly who was responsible for putting that report together in looking at that previous report. It certainly doesn't seem to be consistent with the standards of an intelligence community report. Right. If I could jump in yeah, here, please. Um, for, from what I've heard from people within the DHS, there's often uh, a divergence between what seasoned intelligence officials are interested in looking at and doing and what the administration is, is interested in packaging their work as doing. So, for example, with ICE's quote-unquote extreme vetting initiative, some longtime ICE officials have been hoping to develop recurrent vetting capabilities that would assess um, high-danger visa overstays that pose a risk to a country in terms of terrorist incidents. However, given the political climate, such measures are also being um, spoken of as a way to gather intelligence for um, information to be used against immigrants in immigration courts for much more mundane kind of immigration violations. Um, so we're seeing a conflation of immigration restrictionist policy with counterterrorism efforts, which can make things difficult for both sides. I think that's right, and I think there's also concern that notwithstanding public pronouncements that the priority uh, is targeting non-criminal aliens, that the statistics seem to suggest that in practice uh, we're seeing much greater enforcement in targeting um, um, those who are here in an unauthorized and undocumented status who are not involved in any type of criminal activity. And from a law enforcement perspective, there are some questions about whether that's the best use of resources. Uh, And from a um, community relationship perspective, uh, this whole 
uh, effort to, to demonize or, or to, uh, to, to, to sort of suggest that all immigrants or people who are here unauthorized or undocumented are somehow responsible for more violent activity, um, plus the greater enforcement against non-criminal aliens is driving a wedge between communities and law enforcement. Um, officials, particularly at the local level. So there's some real concern about all of these issues as you bundle them all together and the impact it's going to have in our being able to actually protect the country from terrorism uh, and other types of violent crime occurring in cities across the country. Well, speaking of law enforcement, Martin, you just got back recently from a conference in Texas, Customs and Border Patrol. Can you tell us about the conference and what was the mood from law enforcement officials there? What were sort of the themes or their thoughts on what was going on? Well, it was the the Border Security Expo. So it was uh, people both from the law enforcement side and and people who were there to help with procurement. So vendors who are especially providing things like surveillance technology, things that would make their job easier. There was a lot of, I think, enthusiasm about policies that would maybe make it easier to sell materials, specifically when it comes to the border wall, so mobile surveillance units, things of that nature. I think in general, though, there were also just a lot of very sort of geeky conversations about the potential uses for biometric technology and you know, ways to make things more efficient while also getting the best possible price for, for that type of merchandise. And uh, one question I'd also like to ask, you know, when, when we were reporting this, we talked to a number of rights advocates who were very, very concerned about the scrutiny that this would impose on, on people who were coming from abroad, who would never really feel safe in this country because they, you know, they would be justified in perhaps considering themselves suspects in the long term. And what a number of them brought up was that, you know, the, the, there, there is a threat in this country of, of perhaps rising mass violence, which they perceived as coming largely from a, a, a white supremacist agenda. And we had mentioned that, you know, a report of this nature that's highly politicized could have the effect of making us less safe in the United States. And so I was wondering, you know, if, if we might be able to get a, a response from John on this, whether or not he also shares that concern specifically when it comes to this worry about deflecting uh, concern from white supremacist or, or nationalist violence towards... Which is an area that DHS intelligence analysis has done quite a bit on, if I remember right. Yep. John, do you have some thoughts on that? I absolutely agree. If you're, you're, focusing, if you're focusing on the wrong, wrong problem, then you're not focusing on the right one. We have done a lot of work. Law enforcement has done a lot of work to, to truly understand the actual threat we face. And there, we are seeing an increase in mass casualty attacks. Some of these mass casualty attacks are ideologically motivated. Many of them are not. They're motivated by some other perceived grievance. But there are a number of common behavioral characteristics um, that are present in these attackers, regardless of the motive. And it's these characteristics that give you greater insight regarding who we should be focusing at at the community level uh, in order to stop these types of attacks from occurring. Not only are the majority of attacks not related to Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism, but uh, of those that are ideologically motivated, you're absolutely correct. Anti-government, white supremacist extremists are responsible for a much higher number of mass casualty attacks than those individuals who are inspired by the ideologies of groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. Even within the group of people who are inspired by what they see on social media put out there by groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda, those individuals don't tend to all come from the Muslim community. It's, it's a pretty diverse cross-section of race, race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status. But what all of these people have in common 
is that they have underlying mental health issues that make them vulnerable to being influenced by these highly sophisticated social media campaigns, and they self-connect with these causes. They're relatively ideologically ignorant, but they self-connect with the group or the cause. They want to feel a sense of social connection, so they conduct the attack for that reason. George, I want to wrap this up by turning back to you. I mean, this is, you've done a number of articles on immigration and on some of the vetting issues. What are you looking out for next? What do you think is sort of might come up next on the horizon? Well, all the DHS subcomponents that haven't traditionally been in the intelligence realm seem to be moving in that direction. There's this report today that said ICE is trying to join the intelligence community. And from what I've heard within DHS, CBP is also sort of building up their intelligence database and then be able to mine it effectively. We're seeing that kind of from ICE, their calls for uh, quote-unquote extreme vetting, not only assess who is high risk, but then to create continuous monitoring of things like social media feeds that will rely essentially on cutting-edge data mining techniques. That's interesting. George, John, thank you so much for joining us. Martin, thanks for joining me here in the studio. And thanks again for listening to the ER. Join us next time. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Shelby Bostead. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.